This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash. Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Green whenever you saw them. And uh, I was privileged to be chosen to represent the estate about a year and a half after his death. Uh, the estate of his art. He was a great artist from a very young age, and he created thousands and thousands of work, both sculpture, uh, oil paintings. He did line of cuts. He did wood carvings. He was just a prolific artist and uh, sold thousands and thousands of pieces of work all throughout the world. He had collectors in, in every probably country in the world. And uh, I, when I walked in you know, to his warehouse for the first time. It was awe-inspiring. I was, I felt like the man was right there. He, his tools were right where he left them, pens and pencils and paintbrushes and paint, and his art was everywhere. And I was going through the work to kind of familiarize myself uh, with it uh, beyond, you know, what he had released to the public. There was works all over the place. And, uh, to make a long story short, I saw this painting sitting on the on the ground in a corner, and it was all the images of 9-11. And uh, that event had just occurred maybe 16 or 18 months previously, and we were still being bombarded at the time by, by news uh, stations with all the images of 9-11, including the plane crashing into the second tower and the buildings coming down and the firemen standing around uh, in a group trying to figure out what had just happened, smoke and fire in the sky. And, and there was a painting of all those images and more. And it just took me back for a second. And uh, it was signed Anthony Quinn. I knew that uh, Quinn had died three months before 9-11 even occurred. And so I was mystified, you know, what's going on here? And I called Catherine Quinn, who was his wife, yes. and said, you know, what, what's going on with this painting? And she said, oh, it's not that. That's ridiculous. It couldn't be. He painted that in 1980. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He painted that in 1985. But, you know, today we've discovered even more paintings uh, and, and his writings. Uh, he wrote two books, one in, 19, in the 1970s and one in 1995, uh, kind of by autobiographies about his life, and he tells fantastic stories in them. Uh, for example, about uh, ghosts. He described them as ghosts and dreams that he had uh, that followed him around for years. And the, one of the most striking ones is about a little boy that followed him around. He said, uh, you know, he, w he would appear, uh, you know, on a studio set, or he would appear at his house, or he would be waiting on the front lawn for him when he left the house in the morning. Wow. And, uh, yeah, he described him in depth. It's a, a fascinating read now that we look back on it, because when you think about it, a man of uh, Anthony Quinn's stature to write such things could could end up giving him tremendous criticism. 
uh, as being, you know, uh, crazy or or silly or or dopey or whatever. But he but he wrote these things in great sincerity. So in any event, he describes the boy as an eleven year old boy with tousled hair and high cheekbones and uh, and he painted him. He painted this little boy. Well, it just so happens that his thirteenth child. Which, he, which his wife bore him when he was 82 years old. What a magnificent man. And uh, this little boy was only three and a half when Tony died uh, at the age of 86. Yeah. So uh, he, this painting that he had painted in the 40s turned out to be an identical portrait of that boy. And it's, and it's Ryan, his 13th child. It's, a, it's an amazing. And uh, it's in the book. And it describes the circumstances. But it seems like what Tony was trying to tell us all this time was, uh, you know, he didn't even understand it. He didn't know what was going on. But he described these things as ghosts or apparitions. He talked about seeing the ghost of Gauguin when he filmed the movie Lust for Life and how the ghost of Gauguin kept talking to him and whispering in his ear. And uh, he would follow Gauguin's instructions because he was actually playing Gauguin. He was playing Gauguin against Kirk Douglas's Van Gogh. And uh, Tony was only in that movie for 11 minutes, and he won the Academy Award. And he credited Amazing. Gauguin, uh, which had, a, had been talking in his ear the entire time. And and in a, in a later writing, he said that Gauguin continued to come back and talk to him from time to time, all throughout the years. So, anyway, I believe now, in retrospect, as we see all of this fascinating things uh, that he did, and the and the stories he told, and the poetry he wrote, and the writings that he did, and the paintings that he did, that this was really precognitive. That it that it he didn't know how else to describe it. He described it as ghosts, or he described it as dreams. But science now demonstrates to us, and 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 a great deal of research has been done on the subject of precognition. Uh, the CIA has used uh, uh, tried to uh, harness this power that we seem to have to uh, uh, envision things. Uh, in, our, in our futures and we all have the ability but some of us are more gifted than others and Tony w seems to have been one of those so there's a great deal of science around this and of course Tony didn't know what was going on he described it as apparitions or dreams but he was a man who was uh, uniquely suited to be someone who would have this skill of precognition We've got a great guest with us today here on Build, Grow, and Enjoy, uh, this amazing, amazing book. We've got Glenn Hart with us today. He's an art expert agent to the Quinn Estate, uh, the amazing book, The Prophetic Imagery of Anthony Quinn, A Study of Surrealism and Precognitive Art, and he joins us today here on our big broadcast. Now, um, tell us about some more of the, the, the most fascinating predictions of Anthony Quinn. Well, in, in in one of his books, uh, he he set the book uh, as him being in the office of a psychiatrist. He was he was uh, suffering, he said, from uh, a great deal of stress 
and he and he wanted to he felt that he could get to the root of it by speaking to a psychiatrist so the setting for the book is him speaking to the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist asks him uh do you have dreams and he says yes i do i dream a lot and he says do you have any particular recurring dreams he says yes i have one particular recurring dream all the time and he said it's i'm on a hill and there's a there's a great house there and i'm on a hill and it's overlooking an emerald green bay uh and he said i'm in i'm in the dark side of this house and i can't get out of it into the bright side of the house and he says i just keep having this dream over and over again well that was uh 40 years 35 years before he moved from the West Coast, where he had lived most of his life. He had always lived in either California or Italy, where there's, you know, blue, uh, pristine waters of California and Malibu and uh, Italy. And he moved to Rhode Island, of all places. He ended up in Bristol, Rhode Island. And he bought a home on a peninsula on a hill overlooking Bristol Harbor and Narragansett Bay, which are emerald green. And he bought a large home that needed remodeling. And uh, so he lived in the guest quarters of this house. And, and he ended up liking it there. It, but it was a small uh, little house, guest house. And they lived there for quite a while while his other house was being remodeled. And he eventually uh, died there and was buried right on that plot. And if you read the writing and you know the circumstances, it, it's basically he described the place that he would die and be buried and live at the end of his life. It's, it's fascinating. And, uh, of course, he wrote that in the 70s, in the early 70s. So that, that was just one of the things that we've discovered as we've started to understand more the potential of what this man was all about. And, of course... All throughout his life, he told fantastic stories. Uh, his close friends would kind of uh, turn a deaf ear to him after a while because his stories were so fantastic in many regards. Um, he said he spoke to animals. He said that uh, he was he did all of these amazing things in his life, anywhere from being a translator for... Amy Semple McPherson, who was a preacher in Los Angeles in the 30s. He was a boxer. He was uh, an architect. He met Frank Lloyd Wright. He did all of these things. He, he was smuggled into the country in a coal bin on a train. He, he His father uh, fought with Pancho Villa in the Mexican War. In fact, his mother did also until she became pregnant with him. But all of these stories were just fantastic, and they go on and on. And uh, yet, there was no one, no one ever contradicted them. When, when he said that he uh, spoke to the ghost of Gauguin, you've got to remember that this was on the set of a movie, so there were dozens, if not hundreds, of people that witnessed the event. And he, he spoke right out at the time of, in front of everybody that, Gauguin was talking to him. <laughs> so this was, the, this was a man who was dealing with fantastic events around him, and he wrote about it and talked about it constantly in the face of what he could have been great criticism of him. But uh, 
it was just part of the ingredients that it took or, or, the, or the indicators that we have that he was a man who was prone to this precognition. So this was going on for him the entire time during his entire life. Um, and the paintings that he's done, the 9-11 painting, for example, is called Facets of Liberty. It's, uh, it's so out of character with everything else that he painted. It, was a, it was, looks like a surrealist painting. Uh, if you look at Salvador Dali's paintings, there's, there's tremendous imagery there. But you look at it, it takes a long time to even understand any of the imagery, to, to understand what Salvador Dali was, was painting. Well, he was painting a dream. That's what surrealism is. Surrealism yes. is the, the use of dreams as inspiration for paintings. And uh, what artists discovered in the early 20th century that these, these paintings the surrealist paintings were very moving to the viewer they were very ins they were very uh attractive that people would would in fact look at them and stare at them and be motivated by them and question them and curious about them and that this was a good thing well tony was painting paintings of dreams that he was having but not of past events but of future events and he he just didn't really realize it and so this painting of called Facets of Liberty has uh, the Twin Towers in it with a plane crashing into it. It has smoke and fire in the sky. It has uh, the firemen all huddled in front of the buildings when they came down with the finger-like structures. Uh, it even has a face, a, a powerful face in the very front of it, which resembles possibly Osama bin Laden or one of the hijackers of the planes. It's just amazing. And uh, it's going to create fascination for people for years to come, I think, as we try to understand just what was going on. We've got a uh, great guest with us today. He joins us live here on Build, Grow, and Enjoy. And uh, this, this book is incredibly uh, well put together. Tell me a little bit about some of the, the, the writing process and research process and everything that you did to put this book together. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story, James. Uh, when I first saw the painting, I was kind of struck by it, of course, and taken back. And I wanted Catherine, who uh, acted as Tony's administrator for the art uh, for many years, and uh, she was she is continues to be uh, very tuned in to exactly everything that was going on in his life and uh, with regard to the art in particular, and uh, I asked her, and I was hoping for some kind of insight from her, but she didn't want, she didn't want to accept what I was talking to her about. She didn't want to, uh, un she didn't want to hear it, because, I mean, it's a dark, it can be a dark image. It was a, it was a terrible time for all of us, and uh, we were, we were fearful and we were perplexed and we were upset by those events and to have Tony have painted something about it was, was shocking. And so she wanted to avoid it. So I, I started to reach out to other people about, you know, what was he thinking at the time? Was, is it possible that he spoke about any of this? And, uh, I interviewed several people, uh, that knew him well, including his agents at the time and friends at the time. 
and there was, uh, in many regards, there was dismissal of uh, of that. That, that there was, um, I guess, many of them would have said, you know, what I was seeing was coincidence. Uh, so I kind of dropped the subject for a while, even though I was, um, you know, very, very curious about it. Well, I spoke, I was speaking to it about someone at one time, and they recommended that I contact a particular scientist who had studied something called remote viewing and precognition. And uh, I did do that. And then I was also sent to a book on the subject called Mind at Large. And it's uh, a study of precognition and how uh, certain people were inclined to this skill. And those things lined up directly with what I knew about Tony. For example, a person who has precognition or who, who uses, uh, has this going on in their life or has capabilities in that regard often is a person who's, for example, very worldly. They know a lot about the world. They've traveled the world. They're historians, possibly. Or they're involved in current affairs on some level. They have a high level of uh, consciousness about the world and the world around them. Well, Tony was that person. He knew Muammar Gaddafi. He knew King Hussein of Jordan. He knew Arafat. He, had, he was in Iran when the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini... Uh, took over and the Shah fled. Tony was there at that very time and had to be rushed out of the country under heavy guard. He, he, he filmed Lion in the Desert. He filmed uh, Lawrence of Arabia in those countries, playing uh, Arab leaders, historically significant Arab leaders. So, and, and of course, he had traveled the entire world. He had been in Greece. He, 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 he was famous for his uh, part in Zorba. He lived in Italy. He, he was from Mexico. He lived in the United States. So this was a very worldly man. He, he, told, he was constantly telling stories. He, was, uh, he confessed to having dreams. He confessed to seeing apparitions. Uh, so all of these things come together. And, and the fact that I think there's one other ingredient, of course, and that is that he was an actor. And he, he lived in a world of make-believe. He was practiced and skilled at creating make-believe uh, characters and making them alive. So you add all of this together, he was the perfect candidate. And, of course, as, as the scientists tell us now, uh, artists are particularly inclined because of their, their uh, use of the right hemisphere of the brain, which is... Uh, inclined toward creative thought and uh, abstract thought, uh, whereas left-brain people are more logical and they analyze things and they're good at mathematics and things like that. It's the right-brain people are more inclined toward intuition and art and uh, their feelings and visualization. So uh, that's who Tony was. So he was the perfect candidate to uh, experience precognition. And it seems like it had been with him his entire life. So as this scientist explained this to me, I realized that this was who Tony was. And uh, I, I, re I attempted again to get Catherine to uh, support my effort, and she was still reluctant. And uh, 
I walked into her house in about 2007, and there was a painting on the floor of, of Ryan at 11 years old. And I said, Catherine, who painted the painting of Ryan? It was unsigned. And she said, oh, that's not Ryan. That was painted in the 1940s by Tony. <laughs> and I said, it is. Wow. Yeah. And I said, it is Ryan. Go get him. And we took a picture of Ryan with the painting, and it's in the book. You have to see it. It's remarkable. Uh, if you hired the greatest portrait artist of all time to do an impressionistic uh, portrait of your son, it, would, it couldn't come out any better. It is Ryan. There's even a little tweak in his eyebrow, uh, you know, that, that's painted there. And so there's, you know, the pressure was mounting on her to acknowledge that something was a, a, a going on here. But uh, it's still a little bit of reluctance to acknowledge it or admit it. And it'll be, it's interesting to speak to her when I'm with her because she waffles between acknowledging it and denying it. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, uh, she, she's now start, starting to study about precognition herself. And I think she may come to the conclusion eventually that that's what was going on with Tony all that time <laughs> with his fantastic stories and his fantastic life and his artwork. And it was all right there in front of us. We just didn't know what was going on. Absolutely amazing. Uh, how do we get our hands on the book, my friend? Because uh, we're, we're about to run out of time here, and I want to make sure people okay. people get their hands on the book. Yeah, it's on, it is on Amazon right now and Bar and Barnes and Noble. You can buy it. It's actually in the pre-published stage. It, it'll be coming out uh, with after some minor tweaks, uh, probably about July first. But uh, you can get it on Amazon right now and uh, Barnes & Noble in a pre-published state. And uh, it's a great read. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. 